0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Seaweed Brain. Today, we're going to be digging into the beginning section of the Tyrant's Tomb. Yeah, get excited because we're going to a funeral.
1: (laughs) Everybody get dressed up. (laughs) The party of the year. It's, It's time to mourn, everyone. Okay, everyone. I am so excited to talk about this book. This book slaps so hard. I'm glad we're taking the time to break it up a la Original Vintage Seaweed Brain, into three parts. We're going to go through it chronologically. And we have not one, but two exciting special guests joining us this evening. We have Katie, who y'all know from the Damn Snack Bar podcast. Hi, Katie. Hi. And we have a brand new guest, Rick. Do you want me to dox where you work or do you not want me to dox where you work? You can dox me.
2: (laughs) I want people showing up at my place of work and asking Is this where Rick works? We have Rick who works at the Chipped Cup, which is a
1: coffee shop in upper Manhattan. Rick happened to listen to our podcast and then we found out that uh, we have a lot of mutual friends because everybody Mm -hmm. I know is constantly at the Chipped Cup. Shout out to Washington Heights. All right. Welcome. Hello. Wow. It's so lovely to have you both here. I'm glad we could make our time zones work. And Katie, you've technically been here before, but this is kind of your first time on a real episode. So do you want to give us your summary of your background with the books, why you started your podcast, and any Trials of Apollo personal lore that you have?
3: Okay, so um, post-jection has been my micro-obsession for about 15 years. (laughs) It is like the only thing I think about. (laughs) And so when I was at university, I... Was waiting for my youngest sister to finish high school and I was like you know what we should do like I was getting really into podcasts and I was like we should go and read through all the books and I think at that time there was only like maybe one or two Percy podcasts out and I was like well I want to do one and then she ended up was moving it English like radio
1: in. camp half blood and floor 600
3: um I think so yeah
1: and the half blood report yeah
3: yeah <laughs> Yeah, and (laughs) (laughs) And so I waited until she moved in with me that she moved out of our parents house and then into my city and then I was like look I've now finished university so I will wait for you to do at least one year so that you're like comfortable with like whatever and then COVID happened (laughs) and so we had to wait until like the end of lockdown to like get stuff ordered to us like mics and whatever until so we could yeah do it. So I don't know if we technically count as a lockdown podcast, but we have been going strong for two years and we just mm-hmm. celebrated a hundred episodes. So it's pretty, pretty Whoa. Yeah.
1: That's so funny because we've been podcasting for like the same amount of time, but
3: we are much less regular and we have not, <laughs> not hit a hundred episodes yet. <laughs> That's very impressive. I'm, like, fairly anal about it. Even, like, over, like, Christmas when I know that, like, we're going to be away, I'm literally forcing Jo at the moment to record, like, twice a week with me so we have, like, once backed up over the holidays so that I don't have to worry about it then. But, yeah, I'm,
0: like, very much
3: like, oh, my God, if I don't keep uploading, people will stop listening. Like, that's my (laughs) view on everything, so... But yeah, it's been super fun.
1: And um, Katie, do you have any godly parent affiliations in case anybody doesn't listen to your podcast and already know how you align yourself?
3: Oh my God. It is 100% Poseidon is my godly parent. It's There's no other option. I... You're the main I'm, character. I'm fully, I'm Pisces with my, like, <gasps> my moon is in Aquarius. My kids, <laughs> like, the whole, like, water element thing. I literally am a swim teacher, and I have been swimming for about 22 years. So there wasn't more ah. of really. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, so that clip of Logan Lerman at the beginning of The Lightning Thief where he's, like, um, holding his breath for, bottom. like, 13 minutes.
3: <laughs> yeah. That's you. <laughs> it, it really actually could be, yeah.
1: Right, that (laughs) gift that was saved on my phone for years. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you're the first person on our podcast who said I'm a child of Poseidon because I'm a Pisces, but it makes a lot of sense.
3: (laughs) Every okay, you know those like um, quizzes that you do online and like even like the filters on TikTok. I rarely ever get anything that's not Poseidon. Okay, so so it's it's
1: very very rarely. Yeah. Yeah, that's impressive. I have never had that validating an experience with an online quiz. Really? I always have to, like, twist it, take it seven more times, and then say this is truly the answer.
3: So what's really funny is, so that always ends up being, like, my answers, and then when Joe answers hers, she always gets, like, the wino daily. Like, she got Dionysus, she got, like, Adia from Norse, she got, like, all the people who are just, like, alcohol, me. <laughs> I was like, the life of the party. <laughs>
1: and does it track? Does it track? Oh, 100% tracks <laughs> Great. We'll keep an eye out on um, Joe
3: yeah, and her safety. Yeah. Oh, she's fine. She's Australian. <laughs> that's, that's
1: not good, <laughs> Well, that being said, Rick, what about you?
2: Okay. Who is my godly parent has always been like a difficult question for me to answer because I feel like I think about it too hard. Like I think like who yeah. would have been attracted to my parents. Oh, I that's feel like- such a good
1: way of thinking about it. I've yeah, never thought about that. I
2: feel like based off of who they are, it would be like Hermes. And I I feel like I could see that for myself. But if I got to choose, it would be Hades. Okay. 100%. Not because he like lets his children suffer, obviously, but uh, because I think the powers would be cool.
1: (laughs) Is one of your parents a mailman? No. (laughs) Or somebody who runs marathons? No, my
2: mom's a lawyer. But yeah, I feel like my parents are like jack of all trades kind of vibes. So maybe Hermes. But I would choose Hades.
1: Wow, I'm now going to be stuck thinking about which God would have been attracted
2: to one of my parents. I know it's it's such a <laughs> difficult question.
1: Oh God, it's terrifying. As I said, The Tyrant's Tomb is a very excellent book. I just finished reading it yesterday. We're only going to be talking about chapters one through if we make it thirteen today. That's our goal. Um, we may not make it all the way there, but I really think this book is fantastic. And I want us to take a moment to just think about like, what are the elements that make like an excellent fourth book in a Verse series? Because I truly think they consistently slap. We've got yeah. Battle of the Labyrinth, we've got House of Hades, and now we've got Tyrant's Tomb, which is so far my favorite book that we've gotten in it.
3: Interesting. I've only read the series through once. And so like reading these chapters back for today, I was like, really like this book way more than I did the first time I read it the first mm. time I, read it, I was like this is a fairly nothing book for me probably because I was coming down off that trauma from the third one and so yeah. I was just like this whole book was like a blur I did not remember a lot of it and then I had to wait ages for the fifth one to come out
2: I didn't remember a single thing about Trials of Apollo when I started reading this again like I read this like a year ago and it truly did not leave an impression on me <laughs> At, oh. <laughs> I, I read the Dark Prophecy, like w- whatever that prophecy is in the beginning, and I I was yeah. reading like Daughter of Demeter, and I was like, who? Persephone? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that would be a way better book if it was
3: Apollo mm-hmm. and Persephone going on like
2: Whoa. a quest. Yeah, that'd be kind of fun. Two whiny people. Um, well, she's yeah. not whiny. She, she, she's allowed to be. She's whiny like. in the Ryrdin verse. Yeah, a little bit.
3: I feel like if she was with Lester especially, she would be giving him a big kick up the ass every two pages being like, shut up, just shut up. So much stuff that he says, if Meg was older, she would be like, what is coming out of your mouth?
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Much like some characters in this book, giggle and laugh when certain things come out of Lester's mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Read the fourth book thing. I wanted to say that they frequently take place underground. But I don't know (laughs) if that counts because Burning Maze was also underground. It still tracks. It still works, I think. It does. I think you can count it. Yeah, you can count it. There's something about the penultimate book in the series that's like, okay, we've laid all of the groundwork, like all of the exposition has been gone through, like the characters have grown a little bit and there's some kind of like big battle or like big hurdle to cross over before the last book. And it also doesn't have the pressure of the last book and the pressure of writing the final book that I feel like, I don't know, they just flow very freely. They're very action packed, but they're never disappointing.
3: I think with each of them being like underground, it's like a good, you know, they have to be physically trapped to like really show that they're Mm. like trapped in their, you know, plot situation as well to like get out to where they need to get for the last
1: battle. Ooh. Any other thoughts? Fourth book.
0: I think you hit everything. It's about the amount of setup that's already been done, the amount of new characters that are being introduced. Everything's been teed up, but without the pressure to resolve everything.
1: Yeah, without the pressure to resolve. All right. That being said, here's what you missed on Glee. We last left off, leaving the tarmac, saying goodbye to the McLeans, the Hedges, Leo, and Festus, as Megan Apollo flew with Jason's casket back to Camp Jupiter. We've got the dark prophecy in a sonnet which we need to deal with, um, as well as the prophecy we got from the Sybil in the burning maze. Apollo faces death in Tarquin's tomb, unless the doorway to the Soundless God is opened by Bologna's daughter. Also, very urgently, Caligula's super yachts are on their way to attack Camp Jupiter. Um, And so we open back up on Apollo and Meg exiting the McLean family plane and getting into a hearse to drive to Camp Jupiter. We open very strongly with Apollo uh, dragging Achilles' name, Dragging it in filth, saying that we need to treat our dead with respect, unlike Achilles, who during the Trojan War, for instance, was a quote unquote total pig as he chariot dragged the body of Trojan champion Hector around the walls of the city for days. Come on, have a little respect for the people you
0: slaughter.
2: But he is gay. He's allowed to be dramatic counter argument
0: the other context that they don't explicitly mention here is that apollo sided with the trojans in general in the trojan war some versions of the story say that he is the one who actually guides the arrow and or shoots the arrow that kills achilles from paris's bow mm-hmm. it seems likely if we are to take especially the version of apollo that's been given to us that like probably something was going on with him and hector we would assume oh right?
1: <laughs> hector the
0: star warrior of the trojan army crown prince was murdered by achilles
1: right yeah apollo would have loved hector anyway <laughs> yeah yes. i agree. I think apollo would have seen a little bit too much of himself in achilles
0: i don't know i don't feel like we have that strong of a sense of actually what apollo's taste in like boys is actually i'm saying hector but like i also feel like it could be paris and that would be also like a very oh
1: it's oh you're right it's paris it would be paris like, Paris is like
0: the such a fucking one. like disaster twink you know like just uh, like what?
2: Caligula. <laughs> I feel like Apollo is just attracted to anyone who gives him attention. Who breathes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, anyway, we do have Jason's casket. We're like driving the hearse, right? Apollo says, I hated how beautiful it was. It referring to like literally the casket. Death shouldn't be beautiful. I love getting that line in the first chapter because we're already thinking about like, ooh, this book. We cannot forget what just happened. Like, there is going to be a fair amount of grieving involved in this book. We are literally on our way to Camp Jupiter, so we're going to have to tell everybody at Camp Jupiter Camp Jupiter, not Camp Half Blood, Camp Jupiter, where Jason was literally raised his home, literally in charge. And we're gonna have to tell everybody that he's dead.
2: I had Jason's death spoiled for me before I even read Heroes of Olympus, I knew he was going to die.
0: Oh, oh, wow. Oh, that goes deep. (laughs) I I know. I
2: went on Wikipedia to, like, look up, you know, stuff. I read it, like, really, really late, like, really late in the game. Because I think I'm a year older than you guys. I don't know how old you are, Katie. 23. 23. Okay, I'm two years older than you. I'm 25. So these books, like, came out when I was, like, you know, like, what, we were in, like, high school? And I just didn't end up reading them. And then when I read Heroes of Olympus in 2020, I... Found out that he was dead and I knew the whole time. I was like, poor guy. Wow. Did you feel like it made sense as you were reading? Like I mean, I don't know. I feel I feel like nothing towards Jason. Like, I'm sorry that he's dead, like, but also he's boring. Like, what did he do? What do so you serve? True. Like this I mean, he did serve the story, obviously. Um, I don't want to get like hate mail from Jason stands.
0: All five of them.
1: Oh, one of them is Ethan.
2: We love
3: Ethan. Shout out to that.
1: I mean, that wasn't saying
0: that they're like bad people or anything, but, um, you know. They're
3: few and far between. Jason dying was something that I was really looking forward to in The Burning Maze. And it's one of the reasons that I read Charles of Apollo in the first place. Because I really, really, really disliked him in heroes because he was i was young enough when i was reading it to be like idolizing percy still in idolizing percy for like ever and it's like why would you ever want to measure someone up to that he will never measure up and so just on sight hated him and then i was actually really surprised when i got to the end of burning maze and i was like emotional about jason dying i was like i hate this character and yet i'm like i literally cried i was like what is going on yeah
1: Yeah, I feel like this feeling I feel towards Jason these days is pity. Not just because he's dead, which is sad, but also just like, I feel bad for the boy.
0: Like his life was sad. (sighs) Yeah. And a (laughs) lie. He
1: was living a lie. He was very alone. He was never comfortable in his own skin. He was not happy being a leader. And he died just when he was about to start fulfilling his other purpose
3: i think that's what made me change my mind about jason because after heroes i read a lot of fan fiction to try and turn me around on his character and i like fan fiction jason i just don't (laughs) like canon jason but then i feel like rick was kind of influenced by how people wanted him to be when he started writing trials and so then he felt wholly different in the burning maze that he did in and i was like oh this this is a character he has like a backstory that's like actually like perceivable and like you know Something a bit more concrete. He has hopes and dreams. He's not going to fulfill them,
1: but he's got them. (laughs) Speaking of his hopes and dreams, in addition to his casket, the thing we have with Apollo and Meg, Meg is carrying his poster board model with all the Monopoly figurines of the shrines that he wanted to build on Temple Hill in New Rome. And Meg is like holding on to that furiously throughout the rest of this ensuing battle we are about to have. So we're driving through the Bay Area. We have some classic Rick Riordan descriptions of what the Bay Area looks like. It's very delightful to read. Meg really likes it here because there's lots of trees, which is sweet. (laughs) They think about how this part of California is so different from the part of California we just left that is being, you know, ravaged by wildfires. And we just think a little bit about the dryads we just met. Also wanted to know that Meg is still wearing the green dress that she got from Sally which even though she does, you know, tend to rewear clothing a lot, it stood out to me because this, like, one-time interaction she had with Sally was probably one of the only positive interactions she's had with, like, an adult woman in her entire life. Sally
2: Jackson just, like, collecting, like, lost gay children, like, their, like, Pokemon cards and just, like, becoming <laughs> their mother. Yeah,
1: Meg saw that woman once and was like, that's my mom now.
3: Rick, like, made it a point to, like, say that the dress, too, is, was already, like, well-worn by the time that Meg got it. And I feel like that's probably something that she was holding on to a little bit because she's like, well, you know, somebody loved this piece of clothing enough to wear it all the time. And now I get to wear it. It's like an heirloom kind of yeah. get the same feeling with like thrift stores. <laughs> yeah.
1: I just feel like there's so much characterization in that. Meg, because of the fact that she doesn't say much, you know, a lot of the characterization that we get of her is from just Apollo's observations of her behavior, what she wears, you know, when she mm-hmm. chooses not to say anything. I don't know. I think it's really impressive the way that Rick forms Meg as a character and the way that they're growing together. Because I do genuinely think when we open up on this book, finally, that like big brother, little sister dynamic is extremely evident. And it feels like genuine and authentic to me for the first time, like really fully. And on the way to camp, yeah, we get attacked by a ghoulish humanoid. (laughs) Happy Halloween, everyone. It's the zombie book.
0: Yes. As they're driving off, they get derailed. The car literally swerves off the side of the freeway, and we have a follow-up battle against this undead creature. Uranimos? I, I think we might as well just refer to them as, as zombies for, for the rest of this conversation. <laughs> Is that bad? Is that lazy? That's
2: basically what they are.
0: It's basically what they are.
1: There's, like, the uranimos, and there's also, like, one other kind of monster that we're dealing with in this book that's, like, undead. But I think it's easier if we just refer to them all as zombies. Yes. Because if you get scratched by one, you will also yeah, turn into a zombie. You will become one
0: of the other undead warriors. Yeah, and
1: it's weird that we're seeing them here because they work for Hades, and they usually are, like, kind of, like, patrol guards or whatever in hell. Or, sorry, in um, the underworld. But we're like, oh, why are you here? They must have been promised something by one of the emperors. And I think Apollo even says, like, oh, did Caligula offer you something? And he's somebody like, Caligula, like,
3: <laughs> another one, the king.
1: <laughs> and we're like, uh-oh, who's the other one? There's somebody else we're going to have to deal with in this book. Leader of the undead. Very exciting. Happy Halloween. Oh, I was going to read the haiku title of chapter two. Dude, this isn't cool. Dude just <coughs> tried to eat my dude. That's my dead dude, dude.
0: Voice. Wow.
1: That was art. That's better than Rupi Carr. Whoa.
0: I mean, yeah. <laughs> Controversial but... <opinion. laughs>
1: What do we need to say about the school battle? Basically, what I took away is that Meg has an amazing grip on her nature powers at this point in our story. I feel like she's really now knows how to use them in combat. She knows how to use them for problem solving. And she just has all these intuitive ways of fighting, not only with her, you know, dual sites that she has but she's using her nature spirits a yeah. in battle it's very satisfying she to like watch. prevents
0: them from dying when they're um again like the car flew off the side of the freeway <laughs> and um she like catches that basically not catches catches but like you know like that should kill you but it doesn't because she's you know a very capable 12 year old
1: oh i did have one thing to say which is that apollo mentions his ukulele right his combat uk And he mentions it. And immediately my first thought was, what about Crest? Like, (laughs) mention Crest. Literally. The pandos who died last book after carrying your ukulele and you promising him to turn him into a minor god of music. And then he died. His name does get brought up later in the book. But I was like, how dare we talk about the ukulele and not mention Crest in this moment? It made me very upset. Moment of silence for Crest. He did nothing wrong
0: especially because apollo also himself was constantly talking about it through the last book i guess all it took was one plane ride and he just
2: he forgot about it his i mean his memory is very selective throughout (laughs) this whole series
0: Yes, it is.
1: Speaking of characters who we're never going to meet again after this book ends, somebody shows up to help us out of this bind. It's a brand new character who we'll never talk again to uh, ever again. Named, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming, right? That's the pattern at this point. What happened to Olujime? Please, dear God, give me a standalone story. It's Lavinia. she's delightful. Um, dare I say a cringeworthy Oh, yeah, young me. She's
0: really giving reader insert character.,
1: <laughs> <laughs> she said, all you dirty little theater kids who read my books, here's a girl for you. Did I mention she tappped a lesbian
0: tap dancer with pink hair? And she's
1: Jewish.
0: She's Jewish. and she's, Jewish.
1: And she's proud of it. She has a Star of David necklace, which was Rick's way of saying characters <laughs> can have their own religion and also participate in the rioted verse because just like Samira Alabas tells us, yes, the gods are not mm-hmm. gods. They're just like powerful people who we need to keep in line, who happen to have superpowers. Yeah. I wrote down that half of her personality is that she has pink hair, yeah. relatable. That's okay. She is gay. She would be friends with Alex Fierro. She has a crush on a dryad.
0: Yeah, She does. And the implication is that she, like, also, like, has, has like, a history of dating dryads or something, which is not something we've heard about from any of the other half-bloods, I feel like, although this is something that was described a lot in mythology. Is that allowed? Allowed? What is that? I just want to
2: say, like, <laughs> the dryad <laughs> is,
1: like, described using she-her pronouns. Poison Oak, like, I guess is female presenting but i just want to say like like lavinia is not gay because the poison oak is a woman lavinia is gay because it's poison oak do you know what i mean
0: <laughs> harley quinn season three on hbo max that's just exactly finished. what i thought um, of when i read this <laughs> I, mean, I was I've like was
1: rick a- like up to date on his like lesbian lore that he named this that this was poison oak the lesbian i don't know <laughs> a couple other things about her her weapon is a mono ballista which is like a very inconvenient uh roman crossbow which is kind of fun um and she's described as being like very energetic apollo makes a very pointed comment about her being extremely hyperactive um even for a demigod quote unquote and we find out a little bit later on that her mom is the muse terpsichore the muse of dance and that her father is a famous russian ballet dancer who apollo yep you guessed it has a crush on Very good.
0: (laughs) And tells her about it, too. Yeah,
1: (laughs)
2: because he has no
1: boundaries. He doesn't care. Also, question. I don't know if I'm missing something, and you guys will have an easy answer to this, or if there isn't an answer to this, but if her mom is a muse, why is she at Camp Jupiter, specifically?
2: I, I don't ask questions anymore. <laughs> I
0: just go with them. I mean, I think the Romans also cared about the Muses. Right, but like,
1: so who? how do they decide which camp they go to? Did Lupa just call dibs? Do Chiron and Lupa text? And they're like, this one's for me. <laughs> they pull straws. They have a Google spreadsheet.
0: No, like, <laughs> I think the logic for the Muses works exactly as well as the logic works for the, like, primary Olympian gods.
3: Does it? Because you know, those gods really- appear in different
1: forms.
3: I feel like there are more kids at Camp Jupiter that are children of minor gods because mm-hmm. Camp Jupiter still, yeah. like, recognizes them as children of those gods. Like, we literally have Reyna. Camp
1: Half-Blood only wanted the protagonists. Yeah. They said, we want the main characters.
0: Camp Half-Blood also has, like, weaker social supports. Like, perhaps the minor gods' mm-hmm. kids just, like, don't, don't make it
1: to Camp. That's <laughs> so true. It's true. Again, I think that Lupa and Kyron have a spreadsheet. Yeah. yeah.
3: Lavinia also is, like, new to Camp Jupiter, though. So maybe now that the two camps know of each other's existence, maybe they've, like, drawn a line straight down the U.S. and they're like, you get one half, I get the other. That's what I
1: was thinking. Like, <laughs> imagine, like, you were born in Virginia and Lupa, you know, you have to make your way all the way to the Bay Area, you know? Mm-hmm. That you die like before you get there. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Anyway, um, who else is with (laughs) our new character, Lavinia? Um, A returning character, of which we'll have many in this book. It's Don the Fawn. Not going to lie, I feel like this book relies on us feeling nostalgic about Don the Fawn, and that's (laughs) just never going to happen for me.
0: I did not know that this was a returning character.
1: (laughs) You didn't know that we met this character before, Kurt?
0: I mean, now that you mentioned it, I was like, oh, yeah, the entire joke is that Dawn kind of rhymes with fawn.
3: Okay, do you know how disappointing, <laughs> I that? You know how disappointing <laughs> that joke is when your accent doesn't sound like that? Dawn and fawn <laughs> don't rhyme.
1: Oh, Also, because Lavinia has a crush on the Poison Oak, Apollo makes some comment like, yes, Meg, remember two weeks ago when you were in love with Joshua Tree? It's just like that. (laughs) And was like, good, don't let her forget.
0: He gagged her a little bit.
1: Literally. (laughs) Come for her. (laughs) We need to come for Meg a little more. Like, the best part of these books is when Apollo bullies Meg. Yeah. I mean, like, (laughs) she's a 12-year-old, like, she
0: needs some influence to be like, you know, like, that time when you were, like, really publicly horny, like, other people noticed. Like, just for your information. It was
2: embarrassing. Um,
1: Yeah, and now we have this absolute slapstick (laughs) physical comedy of the four of them. Dawn, Lavinia, Megan, Apollo trying to carry Jason's coffin by hand back to camp jupiter right because the hearse is destroyed <laughs> and they're like carry it like a sofa like you guys like da-da-da-da. i think i thought it was so funny um after this like reverence about like death was beautiful it should not be beautiful and then they're like knocking jason's casket around the tunnels <laughs> trying to get back to camp jupiter that's some classic rick
0: oh yeah i don't know if we mentioned this but the casket's also like a little bit fucked up because the the zombies are also interested in eating jason's yep. body so they like mess with it a little bit yeah
2: this is sad. I'm trying to get- A little piece of that. A piece of that, what, Rick? A piece of that, a piece of that little, you know. That sweet white bread.
1: (laughs) That soft little loaf of white bread.
2: You'd probably taste like nothing, I feel like like she's i just don't think so true
1: why would a ghoulish cannibal even (laughs) want him
3: when i read this book for the first time there was a big part of me that thought jason was going to come back as a zombie because i was like you have the character die in the last zombies are like the main like thing in this one and you're carrying him like he's there like just you had zombie jason wow
2: i didn't think about that but that makes so much sense That would be the most interesting thing that happens to his character the entire (laughs) series. (laughs) Second only
1: to being murdered by Caligula. Dying. Okay. (laughs) So what happens when we show back up? We are greeted by our next returning character. It's Hazel, who, shout out to Rick, through Apollo's POV, describes Hazel as being 14 or 15. Um... Which we have to shut out because, again, Rick has no idea how old Hazel is. The timeline got messed up. Her and Nico, we will never know
2: their actual ages. Like, he doesn't
1: know. Among the greatest debates in the verse, like, way up there with is it Talia or Thalia, is, like, how old is Hazel?
2: (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah
2: sorry i know yeah we have no, like, like angry correspondence about like that it's talia. It's, talia. it's talia but apparently they were pronouncing it as thalia or like whatever the like, audiobooks says thalia rich can be apparently
1: wrong. rick says thalia but i don't care what anyone says it's Talia. argue with the wall yeah
2: Yeah.
3: rich can be wrong he wrote it but he can, but he he wrong. can be wrong about a lot of a lot of stuff
1: richard has been wrong before when he's acting up he's richard <laughs> <laughs> Or dick. <laughs> no, dick is what's being <laughs> fun and sassy. Oh, okay. When the coffin gets knocked around in the tunnel, that's a that's classic dick <laughs> that's <rioting>. Dick. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's a dick move. Yeah.
1: <laughs> We've got some more ghouls that we need to battle. Again, Meg is holding onto the poster board. Hazel and Meg are both very formidable in this next battle with another one of these ghouls, but unfortunately Apollo gets scratched. So sounds like he's going to turn into a zombie. What an excellent ticking clock of high stakes to put onto the rest of this book. What kind of Deus Ex Machina is gonna free him from this situation, do we think?
2: We'll find out, I
1: think. But you know, of course, Hazel is like, so who's in the coffin, guys? Um, and now we're back to Saddy like, Sad, McSad Face time.
2: There's no real like good way to break the news to a child that her child friend is dead.
1: Right. A child who may be fourteen or fifteen will <laughs> never know.
2: We'll never know. <laughs> Hazel's
1: just like, I had nightmares, a boat, a man on a horse. Which really got me. I was like, wow. You know how the demigods, we see some of their dream visions. But the thought that they have so Mm -hmm. many of these dream visions, you know, like for the most part, they have these every single night. Like what kind of stuff they're seeing about their friends and them having to question whether or not that's real or whether that's like just a regular dream. Oh, and now we have to go and spread the news of Jason's death to everybody. There's some physical descriptions of Camp Jupiter. And I was kind of struck. Camp Jupiter feels so foreign to me. It still feels very alien and like I don't get it.
0: Yeah.
1: Or not that I don't get it, but that it's not my home. Mm-hmm. I'm still
0: a little confused. Yeah, I
1: have no connection to that place. <laughs> yeah. Not in a bad way. Just like, no, no, just, just it's,
0: like just there. it's the other place. Yeah. yeah. There's like a lot of moving parts too. You know, there's temples, there's a city, there's a university, there's a military, there's the fort. And they're all kind of run by the same people, but also a little bit not run by the same people. And there's like, maybe military rule and like maybe a senate and maybe the old people have some sort of democratic accountability from the children who run everything but maybe they don't maybe like literally the 60 year olds are just governed by like 16 yeah, year old I have questions and think that that's fun.
3: I just kind of like to think of it as like once you graduate from like being in the in the army, <laughs> you just don't live in a high rise and it's like safe. You don't have to worry about
2: anyone else. And you're like put up there. You don't even have to pay. I guess that's one way of looking about it. Yeah. But we find out that there are some
1: parents who perished in the battle most recently, which means that the adults like the people who have graduated from the Legion or whatever are still fighting. The battles that come to New Rome.
0: They're like reservists.
1: All right. This is page 37. Apollo describing Camp Jupiter. From what Leo had said about the recent battle, I'd expected to see the place leveled. At this distance, though, in the waning light, everything looked normal. The gleaming white buildings with red-tiled roofs, the domed Senate House, the Circus Maximus, and the Colosseum. The lake's south shore was the site of Temple Hill. With its chaotic assortment of shrines and monuments, On the summit, overshadowing everything else was my father's impressively egotastic temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus. If possible, his Roman incarnation, Jupiter, was even more insufferable than his original Greek personality of Zeus. And yes, we gods have multiple personalities, because you mortals keep changing your minds about what we're like. It's exasperating. In the past, I'd always hated looking at Temple Hill, because my shrine wasn't the largest. Now, I hated looking at the place for a different reason. All I could think of was the diorama Mecca was carrying and the sketchbooks in her backpack. The designs for Temple Hill as Jason Grace had reimagined it. Compared to Jason's foam core display, with its handwritten notes and glued-on Monopoly tokens, the real Temple Hill seemed an unworthy tribute to the gods. It could never mean as much as Jason's goodness, his fervent desire to honor every god and leave no one out. We really fully
2: martyred that boy. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> he really didn't do much before this. Like, I mean, he was on the Arco too. Like, yes, he he helped during the Titan War. But, you know, like, we don't even know much about him. He literally just grew up in Camp Jupiter. Yeah. Like Lupa found
1: him when he was like three, two. A baby, yeah. Four. Baby. A literal baby.
0: I think they were like one year old. Isn't that what they said? He was like yeah, teeny tiny baby. Like, uh, th- they also revealed to us shortly after this that, you know, like 25 other people have also just died.
1: In their cohort alone or something, right?
0: Yeah. There's, like, been a lot of death. It's not like Ed Piper was not, like, equivalently, like, in the same moment that we just saw, like, taking the same risks and, like, willing to sacrifice the same things. I, I don't know. It's a weird place because Jason is a character that definitely is, like, <laughs> the most interesting thing he had going on was the fact that he got killed. So I guess that's what they're leaning into as they're writing about it. It's like, all these potentials that he had that were stopped short because he died, rather than, like, this is what I remember about what he was like to interact with as like my friend right, or something. Well, because people but- don't have those <laughs> memories
1: of interacting <laughs> with him as a friend because he was kind of unknowable, right? Like when he was at Camp Jupiter, at least from what I remember and like yeah. the way that Reyna would speak about
0: him, he was... Guarded and like confused.
1: Yeah, somewhat unknowable. He was just kind of there. He was doing his job. He was doing his duty and that was his only job. Also, I know that this is my own Percy Bias like jumping out that I need to check. But my literal first thought when I heard that line about Jason's goodness was like, this was Percy's idea at first. Like, okay, but Percy
2: never had the follow through.
0: He would have never... Percy's idea is better. He would have
2: never made a poster (laughs) board. Right, so like I tweeted that and
1: then people were like, yeah, but Percy got kidnapped like right afterwards. And I was like, "Mm, I don't know where the timeline... Like he had time to make a poster board probably before he got kidnapped. But point being, I think it's so funny that like this, there's just such a very similar... It's just very similar to Percy saying we need cabins for the children of the minor gods to Jason saying we need to honor the minor gods like but Jason is treated as this like big revelatory like insane like amazing idea that no one's ever had before and his goodness is truly unparalleled.
0: I also have to say like the way that they talk about this is a little like when I reread this I had to remind myself like oh wait Jason is not trying to do the same thing Percy was trying to do cuz Jason is specifically trying to give more attention and yes. love, and services to immortal deities of immense power.
1: But because, partially because did not care about those Percy deities are like, going to fade away if we don't worship them. I guess that's what them. it
0: is. He's, like, protecting, He's like, protecting endangered, endangered species. <laughs> species. But, like, the endangered species in question are, like, yeah. primordial Omnipotent. Like, manifestations of, like, ideas of Western civilization, quote-unquote, right? Like, I, I don't know. Like, the idea, it strikes me as, like, not True, like redistributive justice. Oh no!
1: Yeah, Jason is like, we need to protect the statues and build more of them. Like
0: <laughs> saying, like the people who are suffering are like the children.
2: Literally, Literally. like we need housing for children, <laughs> housing and healthcare for children. See, like I kind of looked at it. How much time passed
3: between Blood of Olympus and the Burning Days? Months,
1: just a couple Ooh. months. Because.
3: Weeks. Right. And so all he accomplished in that time was a poster board. And I like understand that the Romans' minds are like hard to change, but Percy accomplished starting to build the actual cabins for the children of the minor gods within like weeks
0: after That's a good point. Last Olympian. you a poster board if the if the blueprint <laughs> and the bricks are also yeah. this is
1: maybe very disparaging of Jason's name, and I don't mean it in that way, but compare I I just think that if Percy were to have been martyred, no one would say Percy's goodness. Do you know what I mean? Like, that to me feels like a cop-out thing to say about Jason. And Like he was nice? Is, you know, <laughs> yes. Like, I think they would be like Percy's bravery, like his ability to stand up to people. That's what I would say.
0: They would, like, give examples.
1: Yeah, and Jason is just like, he was so good. They'd talk about how sarcastic he is, probably. Yeah, they'd be like, Percy was hilarious. But Jason was just good.
0: Yeah, that's true. You don't want to be at a funeral where all that they have to say are like nice things about you. You know, like that's I don't think that is actually the mark of like a full life.
2: Well, he was like 16. (laughs) Yeah, he did not live a full life.
0: Um, (laughs) There was no full life live. That is the point. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, but that just
2: struck me as like very
1: classic Jason. And this is like good writing on Rick's point. I just mean like, of course, Apollo would say that because what else
0: is he going to say about Jason? Mm-hmm. that's true apollo also did only know him for like a few days
3: a lot of it about <laughs> jason was like extremely poor writing because like he didn't have any inclination to change any part of camp jupiter until after interacting with the seven and seeing how camp half flood was run and like that kind of thing whereas like in percy's point of view he saw the injustice of the minor gods children not being recognized from the lightning thief like mm. from day one he was like well that's not fair why isn't why are the why are there all these kids in the homies cabin that haven't been haven't been you know moved into other cabins why uh and then with calypso he's like well why is this like this is unfair <laughs> why is she still here and like interacting with nico he's like he literally has nowhere to like sleep at night because his dad doesn't have a cabin here and so like he saw that from the get go so he always had that motivation of like i need to fix things and like the reason we need to fix things is because these people are literally changing the tides of the war like if you don't respect them they're going to go to chronos's side and so percy's like look what you did wrong i'm going to fix it whereas jason's like oh I mean, like, I guess we could, I don't know. Like, I don't really
1: feel about it. Yeah, that's why Percy was raised by a hardworking single mom and Jason was raised by a um, militant wolf. And that's the difference between the two of them and the way they see the world. Anyway, well, wow, we really analyzed that one sentence to death. Anyway, we get to the fort again. I'm not sure how the layout of Camp Jupiter works, but I guess there's some, like, stores And there's a coffee bar run by this two-headed guy named Bambilo that ends up being where Meg and Apollo sleep at night, which is very sweet. And here's where we get the re-entrance of another character, Frank. Frank is back, everybody. Hold the applause. I know, I know. Um, (laughs) It's crickets. (laughs) I'm hearing crickets. I'm actually, this is my favorite Frank ever. Frank in this book is my favorite Frank, you know?
0: Apollo's way of describing him is really interesting. And like, I don't don't know if Frank is different or it's just like the fact that we're not in Frank's head and we're seeing Apollo be like, oh, Frank is like so adorable. Frank is a little puppy. Like, Apollo
1: loves Frank. Apollo has a crush on Frank. It's really... (laughs) Have you ever
3: seen those headcanons that are like, Frank is autistic?
0: Frank, I feel like people projected many, many things onto him. Like I've heard Frank is autistic. We've had many discussions about, like, Frank is trans. Oh, right. It would be very yeah. interesting
3: for him to actively be that character when he, you know, self-professed doesn't have ADHD, doesn't have, like, you know, he's different right. to the other demigods in this right. way. I feel like it makes a lot of sense to me that he is or on the spectrum in like that kind of way. Yeah, yeah, and also lactose intolerant.
1: Yeah,
0: the
3: most important part. It's a big part. But shout out,
0: like, what we're getting here is like the the third wave of how do you say reactionary thoughts about what good ideas of what you should say about Asian American men looks like. You can't see this, but I'm doing like 30 million air quotes because podcasts are a <laughs> movie <new> medium. <laughs> I feel like what we saw from Frank in his first set of five books was very much, I think, this very common impulse from, like, the mid-2010s that was a reaction to, like, f- like from the dawn of time, ideas about like, Asian-American masculinities and saying that, oh, like, what is actually revolutionary is to talk about, like, Asian-American men being, like, bros and gigantic and roiding up. Masculine. And how they're, like, actually, like, maybe they could be a linebacker. <laughs> And perhaps if this were the kind of book that actually reached some sort of critical mass of, like, 30-something-year-old Asian American men who are, like, on the internet, I think they would be incredibly, incredibly upset to read this turn where um, Frank is, like, nice again and um, Apollo thinks that he is cute and describes him that way um, frequently. He has
1: notably physically gone from, you know, he was kind of like a teddy bear um, and then he had that... Mars induced growth spurt where he mm-hmm. got like tall and like kind of ripped shredded. um shredded which was just kind of like a blessing from the war god and now he's like still tall but he's kind of back to just being like a normal guy again which is i think both representative of what puberty is like for some kinds of <laughs> tall boys and also like good just let him be a normal person he does not need to be big and scary in order to be like an effective leader or to be a child of mars i appreciated the return of normal Frank
0: oh yeah this is fun this this is the mode in which the character is the most fun to read easy to read
3: see if I was taking leadership advice from two children of Mars I would be taking leadership advice from the big cuddly teddy bear looking Mm -hmm. one then from the scary (laughs) like war looking one I'd be like I trust that person a little bit more because they look like they like cake (laughs) <laughs> I,
2: it. I also think that like if Frank is gonna have to be with Hazel, why? Um, I'd rather it be this this version, yeah, I guess and not it's, the I scary guess. war yeah. version, yeah,
1: yeah, not the handsome Squidward version, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry if nobody if like a listener doesn't watch spongebob and they don't understand that reference i can't help you if you didn't watch spongebob i have to
0: have that reference <laughs> explained to me i was not a spongebob watching child but like if you didn't like you need to grow up i'm sorry this is for me i've never seen a single episode all the way through but you know who the hash slinging slasher is you google the references
1: who else do we meet in this moment walking through camp jupiter <laughs> the real star of this novel the reason that i'm here here. The reason I'm alive.
0: Unfortunately. Well, <laughs> it's not great that she's the star of the novel, unfortunately. I did not enjoy watching her be talked about in this novel. No, no, no,
1: no, no. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, let's, <laughs> yeah, let's, yeah. Let's, let's be clear. So Reyna is here. Like, Reyna's here. And that's what I'm excited about. What I am not yes. excited about is the way that Apollo feels about her. Okay, so when she first shows up, right? We're just talking about these first few chapters. We do not know what's going on. I have never been so confused in my, and I read The Battle of the Labyrinth. I have never been so confused reading a Rick read- book as being like, what is going on between Apollo and Reyna?
0: Can we drop a reading? Go for it. Okay. My gaze drifted to the young woman at Frank's side, Praetor Reyna Avila Ramirez-Ariano. And I remembered. A bowling ball of panic formed in my heart and rolled into my lower intestines. It was a good thing I wasn't carrying Jason's coffin, or I would have dropped it. How can I explain this to you? Have you ever had an experience so painful or embarrassing you literally forgot it happened? Your mind dissociates, scuttles away from the incident, yelling, nope, 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 and refuses to acknowledge the memory ever again? That was me, with Reina Avila Ramirez-Arellano. Oh, yes, I knew who she was. I was familiar with her name and reputation. I was fully aware we were destined to rent at her at Camp Jupiter. The prophecy we deciphered in the Burning Maze had told me as much. But my fuzzy mortal brain had completely refused to make the most important connection, that this Reina was that Reina, the one whose face I'd been shown long ago by a certain annoying goddess of love. That's her, my brain screamed at me, as I stood before her in my flabby and acne-spotted glory, clutching a bloody dress to my gut. Oh wow, she's beautiful. Now you recognize her? I mentally screamed back. Now you want to talk about her? Can't you please forget again? But, like, remember what Venus said, my brain insisted. You're supposed to stay away from Reyna, or... Yes, I remember. Shut up. You have conversations like this with your brain, don't you? It's completely normal, right? Reyna was indeed beautiful and imposing. Her imperial gold armor was cloaked in a mantle of purple. Military medals twinkled on her chest. Her dark ponytail swept over her shoulder like a horsewhip, and her obsidian eyes were every bit as piercing as those of the eagles that circled above us. I think that's a good place to stop.
1: (laughs) I literally was out loud. Stay away from her. Stay away from her. Stay away from her. What's going on? The
2: Demi Lovato meme where it's like, get a job. Stay away from (laughs) her. Stay away from her.
1: Literally that. Because we know, we know, like we were visiting a lot of characters in the Trials of Mm -hmm. Apollo who we know from the Heroes of Olympus who have loose ends in some way that need to be tied up. For Frank, I'll just say it. That's the firewood right? For Leo, it was his relationship with Calypso. For Reyna, it's this weird little thing we have about Venus telling her that no demigod would heal her heart. And now here Apollo is really making it seem like he thinks he is the god that is going to be able to heal her heart. And it makes me so mad on so many levels, yeah. it makes me viscerally uncomfortable. The thought that the gods would have their like eye on like cute demigods who are sixteen,
0: which we have also witnessed before. Yeah, and like as you might remember, the first time we interacted with Apollo, it was when he was hitting on Talia. Talia at the time yeah. was like three days shy of sixteen.
1: You know, he's consistent. Consistent with Greek mythology, let's be clear. Yeah, but truly nasty
3: when he saw um Rena in venus's little like i don't know smoke, like whatever it was she wouldn't have been 16 yet so it's even worse she
0: would not have that's true we're gonna Ooh. come to that sequence later in the discussion mm-hmm. or like it shows up later on and this first passage all we're getting is that some vague idea that he like was into her and that there's some reason why he's not supposed to be beyond like i don't know like i i was as a reader i was not like oh wow like i'm at the edge of my seat tell me the one reason why he can't be with her like (laughs) no
1: i and i have to say that the the payoff ultimately in this weird reyna apollo relationship is worth it but i Mm spent the first half plus of this book just furious at apollo absolutely ragingly uncomfortable like so freaked out about where this was going to go and like very scared like i was not going to put it past rick to team up reina and apollo you never know what's going to happen
3: this book was just like it came at, at an especially worse time because it was right when the Raina talia shit became like really really big and then rick released this book and it was like what are you trying to say
1: was that a thing in the fandom? Oh, it
0: super is. Yeah.
1: And also, again, with Rick being influenced by the fandom, because there are comments in this book about Raina and Talia being like really close mm-hmm. friends and Raina being like, everybody thinks that Talia and I are a thing and we're not a thing. Why does everything have to be a thing all the time? Yeah. Rick, again, when will he release his secret Tumblr? Never. Uh- <laughs> we'll never know. I think that this is a good place for us to take a quick break so that we can come back and encounter Two more of our very most favorite characters who have been hiding out at Camp Jupiter lately. (laughs) Okay, we're back. So Apollo has to explain to everybody here at Camp Jupiter, especially Reyna. Oh, God, most of all, Reyna, about Jason's death. And the way that he ends up doing this is in the form of a song. Specifically, he does it in the form of a song because he thinks about Piper. And that song Piper sang on the boat, he effectively tells the tale of what happened to Jason. Everyone is very moved. There's a big chant. Reyna announces they will absolutely be rebuilding Temple Hill according to Jason's plans. And not only will they be doing that, but they will be doing it in two days before the funeral. This weekend. Period. Yeah. Because who gets shit done? Reyna. Just like Annabeth really got those cabins built for Percy. <laughs> this is where we decide, you know, Apollo and Meg will stay here at Camp Jupiter. In this moment, I mean, I I know that Hazel and Frank are both affected by Jason's death. But Reyna, I just... My heart was breaking for her.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, even though she had, unfortunately, fallen for that bland, bland young man, like, obviously, like, she's she had some, like, feelings for him, and like, him passing away. They were partners in many
1: ways. Work-wise, they were co-leaders of the camp. They had spent years together, at least the years that she had been at Camp Jupiter until now.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Though they may have not been necessarily emotionally close they probably spent every waking moment of every day together and there was a time in her life where she thought that they were going to be like partners forever like in also in a romantic sense you know yeah after everything that we saw her go through in blood of olympus i just cannot comprehend her going through this kind of loss but i just think, you have to I don't wonder
0: know. who is who's like there for her in this moment also because <laughs> exactly. like part of the reason why we don't feel bad well or why we don't feel as bad for the other characters like we have a really clear vision of like who Hazel and Frank are turning to for emotional support. Mm. I didn't have a clear vision for Piper really, and I don't really have it for Reyna. Which is unfortunate because I think there are characters that we know who could fulfill this role, but like part of the Tell like me. setup of the series <laughs> is that no one can communicate with anyone. So Raina at this point just has to make do with whoever is at camp. And at camp she is basically, you know forcing Frank to (laughs) try to take some of the leadership responsibilities while basically, it seems, running the show herself and shouldering all of these responsibilities on top of processing this mostly by herself.
1: It's so hard. And I just, again, her arc in this book is so good. And it starts with us being here in this moment, thinking about all of this, like feeling this bad for Raina, questioning who does she have to rely on? How much more of this can she take? How much more leading Mm -hmm. alone and, and holding this burden Can she handle? And we want to be thinking about all of those questions as we continue further into this book and see where her character arc leads us. Zooming into some more chapters. Apollo falls asleep. We have some classic dream visions. Turns out Commodus and Caligula are combining forces heading up for Camp Jupiter very soon. So that's not great. Meg and Apollo are staying at the coffee shop, as we said. Meg is very notably drinking coffee now, um, which is scary for Apollo, but I saw it as a sign of emotional growth. I think she's maturing. Every oh, yeah. young girl gets to that special point in her life where she starts drinking coffee and, you know, becomes a becomes an adult. Apollo falls asleep for like a day and a half because again, he's turning into a zombie. And when he wakes up, it's time for Jason's funeral, and Temple Hill has almost been completely finished. Frank flies in in the form of a raven to have like a nice long chit chat with Apollo about what is to come about the prophecy, et
0: cetera. Et cetera. So, so that brings us to um, a reunion with the other two people we're expect to uh, run into at camp. Well, I guess not people. We're going to go see um, Ella and, and Tyson.
1: Not people.
0: Non-people. Better than people. Um,
1: <laughs> I have a question.
2: Yeah.
0: You know
1: how there are these lines in the dark prophecy the words that memory wrought are set to fire ere new moon rises or the devil's mount, the changeling lord shall face a challenge dire till bodies fill the tiber beyond count. Are we, and the, you know, Apollo and Frank have a chit-chat about this. Did this all happen like off screen? Is that what we decided? Yeah.
0: The bodies filling the tiber beyond count?
1: Yeah, like this yes. all happened before we got to Camp Jupiter. Mm-hmm. In the yes. battle that Leo flew in to warn them about.
0: Yeah. Not just that, like, a lot of people died. It was specifically that they could not figure out everyone who had died. And that, like, a lot of the bodies are missing because the attackers were zombies. And, like, presumably some of them will be um, coming back on the other side. But we don't know.
1: But like, is this the first time that there's been, like, a whole stanza of the prophecy that we were not even present for? <laughs>
0: wow maybe you know
1: because i was just like this is so random like apollo just <laughs> have to skip this
0: part i mean i guess like an oath to keep with the final breath the oath in question is not something that we ever were we present for um
1: wait that is true i guess so yeah i mean i guess the prophecies work in mysterious ways you're right you're right
3: i went in a whole deep dive that the prophecy from the last Olympian hasn't actually been fulfilled and that nico is gonna fulfill it what now stop <laughs> Stop. <laughs> what? Talk about it. I saw one post on Tumblr where someone like went through each line and was like, this actually refers to Nico and this refers to Nico. And because he can do this, this, this with this, this, this power, like he's going to. Yeah, it was pretty extensive.
1: Well, Marco Shiro, you know, will confirm or deny, I guess, I suppose, in the sun and the star, whatever's (laughs) going to happen there. Listen, he needs to be left alone. He's
2: been through too
1: much. <laughs> so Frank tells Apollo that everybody at Camp Jupiter also lined up to punch Leo, which I think is adorable, hilarious. Um, They did the exact same thing that we did at Camp Half-Blood. Maybe the kids at Camp Jupiter aren't so bad. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. That's just the energy that Leo gives off. Like, he deserves to be punched. Tyrion. Also, at some point in this conversation with Frank, I don't remember where, Apollo mentions that, you know, Hades has famously made very many awkward attempts Awkward rambling attempts at small talk is what he says, which I love. Like that's the characterization of Hades that I really appreciate. And it reminds me of Nico. Like it's like like father, like son, like yeah. awkward, socially awkward <laughs> emo
0: Hades. Like, do you all know you all, I'm assuming, know the TikTok of the woman who um is like, have you ever had crispy cream?
2: Is it crispy? <laughs>
0: Was it Grisby? Was it Grisby? No. That's Hades. Hades also would tell you a small joke and then stand back, like, take a step back and just make direct eye contact with you, waiting for you to respond.
2: And, like, have, like, terrible, like, delivery, too, of the actual (coughs) joke. And you just stand there and you're like, all right, thanks. (laughs) He's just a guy who lives underground and has, like, minimal contact with anyone else other than, like, his wife. And dead people. So, of course, he would be socially awkward. Yeah.
1: Anyway, you know who else is back? Returning characters on a returning character list. Terminus, the statue. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. The <laughs> dynamic between Terminus and Apollo actually made me laugh out loud. There were several <laughs> jokes within this conversation where I laughed out loud walking across the Pulaski Bridge. <laughs> it's hilarious. They have, like, beef, which is great. And Lester's birthday is apparently coming up. Soon, which is important. Terminus reminds him of that. And Apollo is like, wow, I wonder if this is like Zeus playing a trick on me or Zeus giving me a warning. And Frank is like, why is your birthday a threat? Like, how could it possibly be a threat? And Apollo says, I'm mortal now. Birthdays are always a threat.
0: Like, this is really funny. This conversation is both hilarious and also gives you a lot of insight into the ways in which Apollo is still. I don't know. Like there are a lot of ways in which Apollo is deeply an asshole in this set of chapters, but this is like a lot of specific ways in which he is a like scared how, how would you say this? Like cowardly. Cowardly, exactly. So when has a lot of like um power-based anxieties. Um, like you see all of this in like the way that he treats Terminus because Terminus is a minor god, and also in the way he's like, yes. oh, mortals must be afraid all the time because like literally thinking about the fact of aging is necessarily is so terrifying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but also the comedy of it when he, when he when terminus asks apollo to hand him his driver's license
1: <laughs> oh god it's hilarious <laughs> oof this is where we talk about how the previous battle that happened just before apollo got here like absolutely decimated the forces of new rome um this is like so like terminus has a little helper named julia like a 7-year-old girl who assists him with the border patrol and frank is like well she's with a foster family right now because her parents died in the battle that happened like a few days ago. That's wild. Because mm -hmm. I literally did not think that adults who lived in new Rome had to fight. I thought it was fully child army, like the (laughs) legions. I don't know, but apparently the logistics are being cleared up for us. And yeah, you are in the reserves and you have to go to war. I think
3: that that's what it's supposed to be because didn't Frank say something like they don't have their normal numbers in the child army itself, probably because of, yeah mm-hmm. and so like because of that he said that all the adults had to step out of retirement yeah and that that was always the plan but it's just something that hasn't happened in a while yeah just
2: when you thought you'd escaped death as a child death as an adult gets you
3: really reminds me of like the 75th creeping in the exactly seconds.
2: that's exactly so, what I'm uh, uh,
3: in 30
1: years from now when rick is still writing books We're going to get a novel (laughs) about Percy and Annabeth living in New Rome and getting reaped into the 75th Annual Hunger Games and having to, like, come back out into battle and, like, think about whether or not they're going to die and leave their kids, you know? Oh,
0: my God. Chills
2: all over my body. They're going to fight with their children.
1: They're going to have, like, three kids. Yeah. Percy's going to be like, I'm leaving. And Annabeth is going to be like, I'm obviously coming with you. Like,
3: I've got your back.
2: Like the last Mm -hmm. Olympian. Oh my God. Okay. Nico's going to show up to save the day.
3: I'm pretty sure I've read that fan fiction. This isn't the 75th Hunger Games. This is The Incredibles.
1: Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Combined. (laughs) Anyway, I really am looking forward to that book.
3: Um, (laughs) Is that the same one where they have to fight Jesus? Oh my God. It's so true. It's the fight against Jesus.
0: (laughs) 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 I also, wait, we have to mention this. Rick... Rick, former educator of young children, Rick, has to like literally explain to us the Latin etymology of the word decimated as a part of this <laughs> explanation of how bad it was. He's like, let me That's let me give you a numerical from. breakdown.
1: OK, because I had understand.
0: 250 soldiers, 25 of them are no longer with us. That is <laughs> 10 percent. Okay, I, didn't, I didn't
2: understand. The that part either, I literally so. was very confused reading that.
0: We're gone. I'm sorry.
2: I went to school for musical theater. I didn't, like, actually learn
1: how to do math. Yeah, I was very confused by that. I, too, went to school for musical theater. I swear to God, I knew math at one point in my life. Like, I'm pretty sure Carter taught me math for, like, call it eight years. Carter literally tutored me in math. Anyway, we have been walking with Frank through New Rome this entire time, and we are finally at a little stopping point at a little bookstore. Wow. And we open up the door to this bookstore, and who is there but Tyson?
0: Yay! It's Tyson, and it's Ella, and it is kind of a bookstore, but it turns out it's mostly a tattoo parlor. (laughs) Okay, I was really confused about this. I don't think that they actually explained this to us anywhere. It is just presented to us that the only way for Ella to reorder all of her memorized fragments of the sibling books is for her to specifically think about them and then tattoo the lines in order onto Tyson. Am I missing something? Skin. Did they ever explain to us like, oh, there was an older prophecy that said that she had to figure out the lines by tattooing them onto a cyclops? Or-
1: <laughs> Verbatim. No, it just says that it has to be in order for her to figure out the proper order, right? Because she's piecing together the books. She has to write mm-hmm. it down on quote unquote living skin.
3: <laughs> Sorry, disgusting.
1: No, <laughs> this freaked me out.
3: It's even more threatening When you like think about, I think of Tyson and Ella as like childlike characters, like even more than. Yes. And so I was like,
1: (laughs) it feels ancient. It makes the Sibylline books feel very witchy, very powerful, very old, which is interesting because of course we are just about to get the backstory on the Sibyl who wrote the Sibylline books, the titular Sibylline. And, oh God. is that titular role. Yeah. Also, we have to shout out that there's a bookstore cat named Aristophanes Named after the playwright who wrote Lysistrata and like famous comedies. That's just so cute. I think Apollo asks, is this your guys' bookstore, like Tyson and Ella, like to own and operate this place? Because no one else is in there. And they're like, um, no, but the owners did just die in the battle.
2: So even the bookstore owners have to fight. They just want to read. Yeah, there is no yes.
1: retirement in New Rome.
2: No. Which really
3: confuses me as to why Percy and Annabeth want to go to
0: university. We just were having this conversation. Is New Rome academically rigorous enough for Annabeth? Annabeth. <laughs> like, is she going to be learning and uh-huh. challenged when, at the same institution as Percy? Like, are there enough people for her <laughs> to be able to have classes where she's not in class with Percy? Because I think that's well, very just important that's for, for her. Percy wants to <laughs> study
2: in school. Like what is his We've argued about this before. Aspiration.
0: I could see him being like a physical therapist. I could see him being like a biologist. I
1: think a lot of people have said like social work. Oh my God. I could see
0: that. Wouldn't that be a dream that, like, Percy is actually... Like, I would really love to see him become, like, a nurse.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Or, like, a school guidance counselor. (gasps) Mm -hmm. Also cute. For the children at Camp Half-Blood who, like, desperately need to talk about their trauma with someone. Who need
1: to talk to somebody who's not Kyron. Yeah. But it's so true because when I think about Annabeth going to college, literally there's one college in my mind that is, like, Annabeth's dream school. And it's Stanford. I don't know.
0: I mean, like, I'm sure she would find a way to cross-register because New Rome is, like, close or whatever. Or maybe she's doing a lot of Berkeley classes or something. That would be, like, even closer.
1: Well, what if Rick is going to reveal that the university at New Rome is actually Berkeley and the mist just obscures it? Because Carter and I were also saying it's that possible that regular mortals can go to the university they just don't know that they're in like a demigod school and they don't have (laughs) access to like register for demigod specific classes and that would be rick explaining why there's so many like weird people and hippies who go to berkeley Mm -hmm.
2: that's actually that's actually so i think that annabeth would
3: actually i think that annabeth would actually really struggle at college because i don't think it would be like anything that they're studying i don't think it would be stimulating enough for her Mm -hmm. and like actually like pique her like interests about specific things Mm -hmm. I think that going through like the day-to-day and being like oh we're being told to look at this and being told to look at this that she would actually struggle to like focus on that Mm -hmm. and not like the things that she's currently like obsessed with and fascinated by I think that she would actually have like a really hard time Mm -hmm. also if
2: she went to like school for architecture I feel like she would kind of be like leagues beyond like any freshman like (laughs)
0: That's true. Yeah. I think it would be
2: built Olympus. Like
0: (laughs) the curriculum would have to be different. I think she'd be like a good grad student, probably, but like, (laughs) yeah, I don't (laughs) skip
2: college altogether.
0: College looks different to different people. Yeah.
1: Percy can go to undergrad at New Rome while Annabeth is doing an MFA in architecture at Berkeley. That's actually what the Chalice of the Gods is all about. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Apollo has a bad relationship history with Cyclopes. Who doesn't? I guess that's some, you know, mythological backstory there. You murdered them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this book is really, let's just say, heavy on Apollo doing bad things.
0: Apollo being deeply terrible.
1: We've definitely, in particular, seen Apollo's like negative relationships with individual people. This book really takes it to another level as far as highlighting the worst of the worst.
0: We're seeing a pattern a pattern of bad behavior that is consistent <laughs> and has certain threads to it. Mm-hmm. Honestly, to me, like this was my issue with the book is that it sometimes borders on. I don't know, like, I feel like the writing cannot hold it everything together in these moments where Apollo is talking about these deeply, deeply terrible things that he's done. And his response is like, wow, looking back now. I can see that that was wrong. Like that jump and that disconnect. I don't feel like there's enough processing. I don't feel like we see anything there in the way of consequences or him. Like if he does, I was just saying something like, "Oh, I like now that I've tried to be mortal. Like I get it now. That was bad. My bad." And then he'll just like keep moving along. I don't know. That like really stresses me out, and like I don't feel comfortable with then like going back to this other chapter where Apollo is like, "Oh yeah." You know, like, old me might have, like, vengefully sentenced a woman to, like, eternal damnation, basically, because yeah. she didn't want to date me forever. But, mm-hmm. oh, look at me, I'm, um, whatever, like, trying my best to give a fun, cute speech for the Senate. Like, I <laughs> the tonal shifts are very jarring, and I, I don't know that, that we're gelling together a character that, like, makes sense. Because it's not really giving antihero. hero, it's not really giving, like, someone who we can really root for, either, I don't know.
1: It relies very heavily on the notion that being put into the body of Lester Papadopoulos has humbled him so much that all of that arrogance and like violence that allowed him to do such arrogantly violent things in the past has now dwindled into exclusively cowardice. And, like, that is the cowardice that is at the root of his behaviors. But now that he is no longer, like, a hot god with infinite powers, we only see, like, the cowardice manifesting itself.
0: Yeah, I think that that's fair.
1: But it is, you're right. It's a huge disconnect between his past actions and the current version of Lester that we see. Even in the first book, like, before he started, you know, learning about what it means to be human.
2: Yeah, I feel like Apollo is just like an irredeemable character. Like, I just I have no love for him. <laughs> and in this book, I mean, I think it's in the maybe the next
1: like somewhere in the middle of the book where he says like mm-hmm. to Reina or Frank or Hazel, one of, you know, our main our main kids um, who have been through a lot. I have done so many bad things and I'm getting sick of being told, at least you recognize it now and you can do better, Mm -hmm. I just do not mentally, personally know how to deal with all of these terrible things that I've done. And they're like, well, too bad. Which basically, like, you just have to get over it and try to do a better job. Like, literally, you can't just feel bad about it, and then wallow, and then, you know, you have
2: to keep trying.
0: Yeah, that's true.
2: I know, he really wants his pity party. She's not gonna get it. Yeah, not from (laughs) Reyna.
0: So, Ella does, um, in fact, have some wisdom to offer them from the sibling books. At this point, we're setting up the first mini-quest, which is that we need to go find the titular tyrant's tomb. We figured out that the tyrant in question here is Tarquinus Superbus, who was the um, seventh and final king of Rome. For those of you who were not subjected to Roman history in school, like, power to you, bless up... No one really should. It's very silly. But Rome had three big eras, right? Originally, there was the kingdom. There were seven kings. And the Senate was, as Rick mentioned in this book, basically a cutesy ancillary institution. At the end of the kingdom, which fell because the last king basically was so egregious that there was, like, basically no choice for them but to...
1: That last king being Tarquin.
0: That last king being Tarquin, who is the titular tyrant of the tyrant's tomb who we're going to go see and is also... <laughs> Have they said it yet officially? He's the zombie king. He's the one in charge of all the zombies that are attacking everybody. Anyway, the the next era after that is the Republic, which is like the classical, like what people are talking about when they say that the U.S. is modeled after Rome. Like that's what they're talking about. Conveniently forgetting to bring up the fact that the third uh, and most enduring and powerful era of Rome was when they um, overthrew the Republic to turn it into empire ruled by a single, you know, uh, dictator. Those are the eras of Roman history. Like it might be confusing, but the kingdom is not the same thing as the empire, which is the distinction that we're focusing on here. The last king comes way before the three emperors and the triumvirate. And he is like a more like primordial evil force that we're going to interrogate to try and get more information about.
1: Yeah. And why exactly he has manifested his lost tomb here in Northern California is slightly unclear, <laughs> both plot-wise and also to the demigods. A
0: lot of shrugging.
1: <laughs> slightly important to the characterization of Tarquin within the verse is that a lot of what we know about him is more legend than fact. Like the way that we think about him in history is a little bit more legendary, like mythy than historical. We truly don't know like where he was buried. He was famously a tyrant. Like him being such a terrible leader is part of what led to the ending of the monarchy and the transition to the republic. Also, just a fun fact, his son was Sextus of the, you know, infamous rape of Lucretia. Yes. He was the one who raped Lucretia. I was just going to bring that up.
0: When we're talking about why everyone hated him and the ending of the kingdom, like that was one of the key instigating events to the disillusion of the kingdom and the um, subsequent formation of the Republic as the dominant form of government.
1: But why zombie Tarquin is now here and like aiding in the destruction of Camp Jupiter? Slightly questionable. (laughs) Slightly questionable. Although it is interesting, I think. He had nothing better to do. Yeah.
3: He was just like
1: chilling and then he was like, you know, what would be fun? What if me and a bunch of my zombie friends go got some like new zombies mm-hmm. and like maybe saw the light of day? That could be cute. He wanted to
2: try vegan food in California. He was just hungry. He was like, I heard San Francisco slaps.
3: But it's all to do with the books, isn't it? It's all to do with the the Celine books. Like that's the reason that yes. he's yes. there is because... They're reconstructing them, and that was, like, the last big thing that he had anything to do with. There's a wee bit of relationship
1: between the Sybil and Tarquin. Interesting to note, because we haven't talked about this, right? Like, we know the main villain of this series is the Triumvirate, and these are Roman emperors. And we previously have not been in this series to New Rome, and now we're in New Rome, right? Which is a society that believes in resurrecting Roman traditions and roman culture. And so there's a very interesting tension at play here with the fact that the roman emperors are attacking new rome and the legionnaires of new rome have to fight against these roman emperors who supposedly represent, you know, everything that they're trying to rebuild in their society, which I think <laughs> is mentioned a little bit but could have used a little bit more exploration <laughs> with yeah. what it really is the difference between these emperors and what they're trying to do in New Rome.
0: Most of the exploration of this comes in the form of Meg's psychological reactions because she looks at a lot of the architectural elements of New Rome and sees her, you know, abusive childhood home, which is something that it makes sense to note in the narration. I think the generous reading that would pull in a lot of spare parts from Roman history would be that New Rome is supposed to be the Roman Republic. And that, therefore, it, their diverging visions of, like, what about Rome was great in both, like, an abstract values and aesthetic sense, but also, like, in a very specific concrete political sense. Like, if you were to point to some iteration of Rome and be like, this is what we're trying to do, they were pointing to different iterations. Although, again, it's not 100% clear, based on the way the Senate is constructed and, like, how much power it seems like the Prietors have in the Senate, what exactly is going on with the governance structure and how much the military is allowed to make decisions that materially affect the lives of the populace of New Rome who do not elect them. But we'll just move right along.
2: Yeah, but
1: <laughs> those guys are mean and we don't like them. So let's fight them, Romans. <laughs> Ella brings up in this conversation about... Tarquin and whatnot. Firewood. She kind of mentions it. you know, how she has these stream of consciousness sentence structures. And Frank is literally like, we don't talk about the firewood. No, no. (laughs) And Apollo is like, oh, I love Frank. Not only is he like so cute and baby, but he also hates... Hera. No, uh. <laughs> we have a little brief reminder of frank's firewood situation which has me here thinking hmm is this gonna finally get resolved in this book
2: i also thought frank died in this book like i read the whole thing that happens towards the end and i i don't know i mistook it as like him like fully dying and i was like damn rick killed off two of the seven in like this span of two books that's crazy <laughs> <laughs> he does not die Sorry. (laughs) If he had to kill one
1: other member of the seven, it would probably be Frank. It would be Frank. It would be Frank. Yeah. And everyone would be like, he was so cuddly, and he had so much goodness. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: They'd have like one more layer. They'd be like, do you remember that time, like at dinner, he like turned into a bear?
1: A dolphin. He had such a good sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) And Hazel would finally be free. Listen,
2: let her be free. Let her be free. Literally release her from the shackles of that relationship.
0: Elderly, um, elderly man.
1: (laughs) Um, It is now for real time for the funeral. And because Apollo is um, a former god in the body of Lester Papadopoulos, everybody sort of looks at him as like the religious authority presently at Camp Jupiter. So Apollo has to lead the procession and perform the funeral rites, which he truly improvises. Where are we? Page 88. As he's doing this, He is having a lot of thoughts about his guilt and about all of the bad things he's done. The golden eagle of the 12th loomed over my shoulder, charging the air with ozone. I imagined Jupiter speaking through its crackle and hum like a voice over shortwave radio. Your fault. Your punishment. Back in January, when I'd fallen to Earth, those words had seemed horribly unfair. Now, as I led Jason Grace to his final resting place, I believed them. So much of what had happened was my fault. So much of it could never be made right. Jason had exacted a promise for me. When you're a god again, remember. Remember what it's like to be human. I meant to keep that promise, if I survived long enough. But in the meantime, there were more pressing ways I needed to honor Jason, by protecting Camp Jupiter, defeating the Triumvirate, and, according to Ella, descending into the tomb of an undead king. Ella's words rattled around in my head. A wild cat near the spinning lights the tomb of Tarquin with horses bright, to open his door, 254. Even for a prophecy, the lines seemed like gibberish. The Sibyl of Kume had always been vague and verbose. She refused to take editorial direction. She'd written nine entire volumes of sibylline books. Honestly, who needs nine books to finish a series? I'd secretly felt vindicated when she'd been unable to sell them to the Romans until she whittled them down to a trilogy. The other six volumes had gone straight into the fire when... And then he gets stopped by Reyna. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. I'm not going to lie. I laughed out loud. <laughs> but two things. Yeah. Lots of interiority from Apollo, which we appreciate. And secondly, we have this mention of the Sybil of Kume, who is the one who, you know, historically supposedly wrote these nine sibling books full of prophecies and advice. And we are going to learn more about this relationship between Tarquin and the sibling books and also Apollo's relationship to this, his Sybil, um, who we have stated before, he tends to have sort of ex-girlfriend-like relationships to all of his um, prophets and Sybils, so. Mm-hmm. And indeed everyone. And, and indeed yeah. every single historical.
2: <laughs> I'm surprised he did not date Tarquin. I thought 100%. One hundo <laughs> <laughs> Literally, he needs love and affection. His mom never did it for him.
1: He's a horrible coward. Yeah, he's violently yeah. insecure. Yeah. The little procession ends up at Jupiter's temple, And because this is Jason's funeral, Apollo thinks there should be certain people here, like his sister, Talia Grace. His
0: only living relative.
1: Yeah, and Apollo asks Raina, like, is Talia coming? And Raina said she couldn't get in contact with her because communications are still down, notably. But who shows up? Jason's other family member. (laughs) The only other living person to have a close personal relationship with Jason Grace. Lupa. Lupa the she-wolf goddess herself showing up for Jason's funeral, which actually made me big time sad. I was like, no, that's her son. He's dead. Like, how many funerals do you think Lupa shows up to?
0: Probably not that many, yeah. Never.
1: (laughs) And she raised every single one of these kids. She literally raised every single person in New Rome, and she probably only showed up for Jason's funeral.
3: Was it ever said how long he was with Lupa before going Two new Rome. like, was he with her for like years? Like years it's it was, it was only like a couple months, or did she literally train him as a baby and send a baby
1: to? <laughs> wow, I'm sure that we could look this up and somebody can let us know if you have the number in your head. We will end here this evening on Lupa showing up. So, we're going to be talking about this conversation between Lupa and Apollo and the further backstory with the Sybil that makes me want to punch a wall and vomit i'm so excited looking forward to (laughs) it thank you so much katie and rick for joining us will you tell the people where they can find you on the socials
3: please well you can come and find me on instagram um at damn snuck pod and we release episodes on all your favorite podcasting places every week so yeah it's fun times we're doing uh, magnus chase at the moment so it's been really fun we love
1: magnus chase if you're a listener of seaweed brain who was like wow they really sped through that and i need more time on it this is the perfect opportunity to listen to damn snack Bark. i need to read
2: Magnus chase i've never rick you would love it, it. Know, not, really i'm not good. a true fan i know i've heard it's like super gay and he's silly um <laughs> dare i say yeah. it's greatest work <sighs> really oh my god okay i will read it the kid i the kid i nanny loves it oh uh-huh. see the kids yeah. love magnus chase they they do they do my Instagram is just Rick R I C underscore underscore Mo.
3: Can I say for the invite that you sent out for this, <laughs> you know, for this meeting, you had Rick with a K written on it, and I was like, oh God, <laughs> "It's him! It? He's here!" I'm sorry that I. Can <laughs>
2: I'm imagine you. we
3: jump scared you, Katie. We <laughs> didn't
1: tell anybody. We brought was like, on the podcast, just and just we specifically just brought Rick Riordan onto the podcast to discuss chapters one through eight of the yeah. Siren's Tomb.
2: <laughs> shit on him, Jason
1: for like of the podcast. <laughs> I must reiterate that I would have no idea what to say to Rick if I saw him in real life. I <laughs> contemplated it because I was really searching. I was really scanning the streets of Vancouver trying to locate him with my uh-huh. eyeballs. I was like, will I see Becky or Rick on the street? And I didn't. But I was like, what would I say to him? Can I have a hug? Like, thank you. Be on the podcast. Yeah, you probably
0: see that, I feel like. Say a Zencaster link at him. <laughs> <And>,
1: um, <laughs> Reporting.zencaster.com <laughs> <Just laughs> slash <laughs> Robert A. Gamer <laughs> <laughs> slash CBD oh Dash McRyatt interview. See you there. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. Well, we will see you guys soon. And listeners, we will see you next time for some violent, violent Apollo violence.
0: <laughs> Bye, y'all. Bye.